2: The Telegraph.
1: Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, welcome to Brian Moore's full contact with The Telegraph. Second round of Six Nations games have taken place and England backed up a stellar performance in Ireland with another, well, at least the first half against the hapless French. The Welsh scraped a victory, albeit with a second team away in Italy and Scotland. Well, they are ruining... Missed chances, but blaming the referee, so that's okay. Here to discuss all this with me is the former England and Lions fly-half Rob Andrew. Hello, Rob. Hi, Brian. Well, Mick Cleary wrote about the England-France game as not so much le crunch as le <laughs> catastrophe. Catad- <laughs> What's French for? Utter shambles. And frankly, it was. Uh, England starting off again at huge pace, and when... They play like that. I don't care who they're playing. The defensive side will have problems.
3: Yeah, I mean, brilliant again from, from England. But, I, but we were talking before we came on. What is going on with France in terms of the management? And I mean, I know you're a Chelsea fan and we probably won't oh, touch thanks, on yeah. that. But, but you look at these teams and you look at selection and you look at plans and coaching and you don't, you don't need to go behind the scenes to see what's happening in training. I've always said you just watch the team, whether it's a cricket team, a football team, a rugby team. Watch the match, and that tells you everything you need to know about what's going on behind the scenes. Oh. With England last week, we, you know they came out. Their preparation in Portugal must have been phenomenal. And the same this week. All right, France didn't put up much of a showing, but what were the French doing preparing for this game? And what was what was the head coach doing around selection and planning and strategy? And you sort of question the value of coaches. And you saw a perfect example on Saturday, as we've seen with one or two football teams this season, where the importance of the coach and the manager in setting the team up, getting the team to play, picking, you know, how many times have we talked about selection? You know, pick the right player in the right position. I'm really,
1: really against playing players out of their traditional positions, unless there's a very good reason to do it, like Elliot Daly, or you just haven't got... Any other options? Now, the quotes from Morgan Parra today are quite revelatory and they're, they're very candid. I mean, let's read them. I think we are capable of doing what the English do. No, you're not because you're not fit enough. But we work on this in training, question mark. I think we don't work on it enough, even not at all. One player has told Midi Olympic the replacements, Thomas Ramos and Romain Intermac didn't know what positions they should be playing when Gail Ficker was in the same bin. France did make aberrant selections. Unfortunately for them, they always seem to do. And the back three, no different. Players all playing in positions they didn't want to. However, England understood that, but it's one thing understanding it. It's another thing defining the solution and yet another thing. And they all have to be there to execute it well. And they did execute it brilliantly.
3: Yeah, and I, I think that's, that is the, the, the final piece of the jigsaw, isn't it? You know well, good, you have good, to have
1: all three. You can't have two. No, good Good
3: planning, good coaching, good selection, and then execution. And that's the bit that was so impressive in Dublin. Not as slick this week, but not far off in in terms of the execution of, of what they're trying to do. There looks to suddenly be a maturity tactically about how England are trying to play, but then also an incredible accuracy of whatever it is they're doing, whether it's a set piece, box kick, kick chase, kick through on the floor, carrying the ball...
1: Well, let's, so let, let's just get that carrying, because this, to me, is the basis of everything. England have had problems at the breakdown hitherto, because quite a lot of the time, they're playing off static ball, players who are playing one-out runners are getting double-tackled, they're being held up, and any side struggles with that. The variety they've now brought in to the way they take the ball into contact, who takes it in, where they take it in, what angles they take it in, or from has given them a new perspective because they are not being tackled two-on-one, three-on-one. It's one-on-one, and when you have big, powerful runners like they do have now and they're all available, that gives you options and it makes it difficult, I don't care who you are, to defend because your defensive running lines are that crucial two yards longer. It doesn't sound a lot, but it is, and if you do that successively, eventually – people run out of players, there are mismatches, and then you've got to recognise that and execute it. And not only did England do that through the hands, they kicked early when they needed to, exploited the gaps there. And that to me is the basis of what, that is a total basis of everything else they're doing well. If you get that right, it depends on good set pieces and they've solidified those. When you get that right, all the options open up.
3: Well it's virtually impossible to defend. And actually what they've got now, they've got they've got ball carriers across the whole team. Not not just not it's not just Billy or Mako. It's actually Jamie George can carry, Carl Sinclair can carry, Laws or Itoji. Cruz is probably the, the least effective of the of the carriers, but all the back row, there's some athleticism with with um Tom Curry and um and Wilson. But
1: but they make it but
3: they make they all make, you You look at Curry, Curry's not necessarily that, uh, such a big guy, but he, he carries quickly, he's, he's quick, as Underhill was in the autumn. And they're both sevens who are good over the ball, but they also carry. So you get a yard across the gain line, two yards across the gain line. Then the next wave comes and the scrum half's getting the ball up quickly. Ben Young's is getting it away much quicker. He's not having to dig for it, which they were doing a year ago. They couldn't get the damn thing out, either because the ball carrier wasn't carrying it far enough or they weren't getting there in numbers quickly enough but it's so much easier when you yard or two across the gain line then they come at pace um, and it's really hard for the defence ever to get reset on that and, and certainly France were never going to um, and Ireland didn't and with that amount of power and then they've got the the pace outside as well so you've got you've got kicking and carrying outside with Slade and, and Daly Well they've
1: got two things that are now becoming apparent, as weapons, which I don't think were quite appreciated. First of all, Tuolangi opens up all the options because of his power. Whether you use him or not, that's not been available before. But the way in which they're using Johnny May, because he's so quick, if you get the right weight of kick, it either means he's got a chance of scoring, or at the very least, provided he doesn't go dead, the defender is going to find himself with his back towards the opposition near the goal line with players making the effort and this was the other thing when you look at the replays how many England players are sprinting to try and make the ground Mm-mm. you know and it's, that's the difference
3: it's almost I mean there's, it's almost a little bit of uh, you know Saracen's playbook in terms of how they tactically are squeezing the opposition defensively and with the ball in the opposition half they're, they're playing obviously if they get the chance to, to go from their own half they will but they're squeezing the opposition so much in terms of putting the ball in behind, either keeping it on the field. They're also not afraid to put it off the field in the opposition 22 and then say to the opposition line that we're going to attack your line out. Or there was a spell in the first half when France just went around a cycle of not being able to get out of their 22. So the psychological pressure of keeping the team 25 yards away from their try line Even if they've got the line out, you know, you can put pressure on them.
1: Well, actually, France had statistically more possession, but the way in which the territory came down was very much in England's favour. So they were much more efficient. And that bears out what you said. Look, let's not get ahead of ourselves. It's two games. I'm sure they won't. All we're saying is, for the first time, these options have opened up. And we've now seen, with all those players, provided they stay fit, What those are, those options, they've not been available before because he's not been able to play the players. And come back to this point, yes, England do have depth, but there's a big difference between playing players who can do a job and playing players that ideally you want in there that in aggregate make all the things work.
3: Yeah, and I think the other thing, and Eddie has often, he talked right from the start about wanting England to be England and look like England and And this looks like a sort of england side that that you know the england fans would would recognize you know the powerful strong up front good kicking game, good chasing game they can you know it's not boring they still play they're playing tactically smart, so it doesn't look dissimilarly to the you know John o and Lawrence and all of those guys taking people on up front, or might I add a side even before that where people took Opposition mm-hmm. on up front, psychologically put them in tough positions where they've got to get out of, really squeeze them defensively, but then have the ability to to take their chances. And I think mm. that's the other thing. They scored four tries in Dublin, scored six tries against... And they, they knocked off after about 50 minutes in this game. It, I mean, it was all over by, in 30 minutes. So, yeah, look, let's not get carried away. But you, you have to give credit where credit's due. And, and this We talked last year a lot about balance of a side. Selection, is it the right balance in the back row, the back, the midfield? Well, the three areas
1: that they've been waiting to get right and which I and many other people were expressing concern over, the back three, the centres and the back row all now look to have balance. Now the job is to consolidate that, bring it into an overall style that becomes reflexive and then who knows? Why don't we uh, discuss the other games? Scotland uh, went down 13.22 at home to uh, Ireland, and we can now speak to the Scotland captain and flanker, John Barclay. Unfortunately, he's out injured at the moment, but it's good to speak to him. Hello, John.
4: Hi, Brian. How are you doing?
1: Okay. The injury list is is huge, but in this particular game, there were opportunities for Scotland, I think, to, to probably maybe come out on top. What will the Scottish attitude be to the loss?
4: Frustration, I think. You look at the game and you look at some, some key periods and, and key decisions and we didn't get, well, we didn't uh, perform how we how we should have done, I think, into that, that passage before half time, if we'd gone in the head there, that would have made a big difference. But I thought, on the whole, Scotland looked the more dangerous ball in hand. The first half, I thought, was exceptional half rugby to watch but then the second half I think both teams Ireland changed their, their game plan a bit and, and played a little bit smarter than Scotland but I think the the Scottish boys they were, they were frustrated and it kind of felt like maybe an
1: opportunity missed What was your view, view of the Stuart Hogg incident?
4: Uh, I thought it was a penalty not a yellow card so to be fair when I watched it live I thought uh, I don't know and then it's like any you watch it a couple more times and I thought it should have been a penalty at least. And then that scrubs off the first try. And the frustrating thing as a player is it's not the referee's fault particularly because he's got PMOs there who, who are checking this thing all the time or they're meant to be. So if that's checked, in my mind, and our SAP said Paul Conlon and he's a, you know, a gyrish man and he's saying that's a penalty. So it's uh, it's frustrating when these things happen. But it's also, you don't want to sound... Like you're crying over spilt milk at the end of the game when you've lost, but ultimately these these are big decisions in games that I think need to be you need to be getting the right decisions.
3: I suppose from a Scotland perspective, as you just said, frustrated, but but sort of not nothing to sort of press the panic button about. I mean, you you will want to beat Wales at home now, but you know there's quite a lot of individual mistakes and and soft try really given away in the first half, and in those tight games. Those little things add up, don't they? And with Hog going off as well, but I suspect from what I've seen over Scotland in the last twelve months, a few injuries here, but nothing to panic about.
4: I don't think so. Yeah, I think the injuries are are mounting up, and it seems to be the way. Like they all seem to be in in one position. I know Hoggy's is uh, maybe picked up a knock, but you know the back row has been you know decimated by by injuries. But I think it's the way Scotland trying to play is, is the correct way. You know, I firmly believe that in terms of what we're trying to do and what Greg is trying to implement. But yeah, I think we're creating a lot, uh, which shows you you're playing the right brand of rugby. But I think you touched on there an area that we've probably got to sort of pine up on. Is we've let in a few soft tries. You know, against Italy, we clocked off for 10 minutes. continued three soft tries, and I felt like you know the first Irish try was was quite well worked. You're an attack coach, but if you're a defence coach, you're pulling your hair out of that. And then I thought I thought the second two tries were you know were very soft in particular.
1: Well, Blair Kinghorn, he didn't start, but I thought he did tremendously well when he did come on. So you've got cover there. To me, um, you know, the ball carrying Strauss uh, strove manfully and probably one of the areas in which the injuries are affecting you is that taking the ball forward. When you've got the full complement there, are you happy that not just in the back row, but second and front row? Because you need probably at least one in all of them, you've got the ball carriers to make the difference because getting across the game line, turning, you know, defences and so on is absolutely key now. When everyone's available, have you got enough?
4: I think so, yeah. I think we're missing some some really good individuals. You know, Richie Gray's not played for a little while. Johnny's been playing the first game. Someone like Hamish Watson's been out. Blade Thompson at, at Scarlet's who was sort of in line to get, to, get, to get caps. I think there's a lot of quality missing. You know, Fraser Brown came in at the weekend. I think, all fit, all being well. I think Scotland have got some really powerful, exciting carriers, but um, we don't quite have that depth of, you know, say England or one of these countries that you, you've got a lot more players to pick from and just by that you've got a lot of bigger men, I guess, to, to choose from. So that's why I, say I think Scotland pin playing the right way. We don't have that depth and we can't rely on, you know, bulk, like say South Africa, do they have that? They just can rely on that physical presence. Um, so I think the way we try to play suits the body shapes we have,
3: and you must be looking forward to going to Paris and the shambles that is the French team at the moment, having watched them on Sunday.
4: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say, to be honest. It's, I don't know. What to say. I watched that game and it could, I thought it was going to be about 60, 70 points at one point. Um, and then I, I actually thought France in the first half against Wales were outstanding. Um, the way they played, the conditions and their ability to generate quick ball and then the second half I just, it's just the complete opposite. It was, it was almost bizarre to watch. But then, you know, you talk about cliches and you talk about the French and then who knows what, you know, what Scotland will face in a few weeks' time at home in Paris.
3: Who, kn- who knows what team you'll be facing? <laughs> it probably oh, won't exactly. be anything yeah, like the one that's know. played in the first two games.
4: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, that's the thing there. So from so a depth, you look at France, they've got 14 teams and then even Prodide's got a lot of, you know, good professionals. There's so much choice there. The scary thing is if France get it right, They've got so much talent that they, could, you know, they should and could be one of the best teams in the world.
1: Well, the, the, good, the good thing from everyone else's point of view and certainly yours when you're playing them next is and they seem to have no discernible game plan. Jouer Jouer is, is fine as a concept but doesn't really give much direction. I suppose in, in one sense it, it, it's difficult to plan other than from your own game plan perspective and getting your own performance right because A, you don't know Who will be playing? B. You don't know where they will be playing, and C. If they do play, how they'll play. play. You know, minute, two minutes. So I suppose Gregor will simply be saying, "Look, let's get all our basics right, and then, you know, let's see what occurs on the day."
4: I'd say so, and maybe she probably analyse individuals looking for traits more than you would as as a team, because as you say, when you watch them, you're maybe not quite sure what their their shape exactly is. So. Yeah, you look at individuals. I think if Scotland play like they did in the first half against Ireland they, and they can keep the ball alive and keep the ball and be accurate, I think they would, they'll would they run in tries against France.
1: Above all, I mean, the the error rate and the accuracy needs to be improved. Do you think there's anything basic that uh, Scotland need to address?
4: I think you probably summed up there, just basic, basic errors. I think the first half was quality from both teams both teams going after it and I thought on the whole you know Scotland defended very well but you know again in international rugby you clock off three times and it's, and it's three tries so but just the we we hand we made a couple what more than a couple we made 15 handling errors in the game and the way Gregor wants to play the game that's just going to kill you and then you added to that fact we had, we started to give away a few penalties some of them were sort of arguable, I think, but just a bit more accuracy in what we're doing.
1: Just leave it with this. I mean, this stat is surprising, but it, it is borne out in the second half, only once did Scotland reach three phases. Now, that's something to address, surely.
4: Yeah, I agree. Uh, totally. And then you look at the I was sort of getting really frustrated watching it. You can sense stadium because you could see the players were getting frustrated. Greg was getting frustrated. And they had moves and then we were just coughing up first phase or giving away a penalty and that's quite unlike us. And then you watch the first half and, you, you know, we could hold the ball for 25 phases. So I don't know if it's a, I don't think it's a fitness thing. I think the boys are very, very fit. I think it was just one of those days where just error went off the of error, went off the of error and, and that's that's just a killer.
1: Well, John, I'll, uh, we'll leave it there. You can go and psychologically analyse the French if if you really want to. <laughs> who, who knows? Good to speak to you, mate. Thank you very
4: much. No worries. Cheers, guys.
1: John Barkley, Scotland captain flanker. They're missing him as well.
4: Yeah, I
3: I think Scotland are on the right track. Oh, absolutely, I, I think absolutely. That, that, you know, it doesn't really knock them off course. We said last week that they'd want to win at least one of the Ireland at home and Wales at home to to make sure they stay in that top well, I, tier. I still think
1: there's a there's a, a I won't say a probability, but the you know I wouldn't put it much below the sort of forty sixty that they that they could beat Wales.
3: Yeah, I don't. I mean, we'll come on to Wales and sort of a little bit. Where, where Warren is sort of with, with the Welsh team and what he did against Italy. But, you know, I think Scotland, have, they've made a lot of progress over the last couple of years. They, they still, as we touched on there, they still have this ability to shoot themselves in the foot a little bit in the big mm. big games, and, and not as badly as they have done in the past, but that was a game they let slip, really, you know, because Ireland were there to be, to be beaten. And if you want to play the sort of game that they want to play, which I think is the right way to go their skill levels have to be much higher than they were in the game against Ireland mm-hmm. because it, they lose momentum and and then it sort of all starts to, to fall away. But I, I think over the next the rest of this tournament into the World Cup, that they'll be pretty handful.
1: Well, let's talk about Ireland and to help us dissect uh, the win, we've got the former Ireland centre Paddy Wallace on the line. Hello, Paddy. Even by, how are you doing? Okay, um... Uh, I put part of my column this week for Telegraph. On this basis, I said, "I I believe that we're only now seeing the physical, psychological, emotional fallout from Ireland making that tremendous run in 2018. And to me, it seems to have taken a lot out of them. I understand why that will be the case. The unfamiliar position of being... Favorites as well. They just looked a bit flat in a way that I didn't necessarily expect, but I now believe I can understand. What's your view on that?
5: They ran into a juggernaut against the English in the first week, and Ireland's game plan is really an attritional, you know, possession controlling game plan, and uh, they just weren't able to, to dominate that, that possession statistic against the English. The English were too strong on the day, but I do sense. Uh, you know, a weighted expectation coming on this Irish team and, and I think it wasn't a bad thing to lose that match against England given that we're in World Cup year and mm. expectations have been so raised. You can notice it going down into Dublin that there, there is such a heightened expectations amongst the fans mm. and that can, that can weigh quite heavy on players. I, I think they have the right man, obviously, in Joe Schmidt to, to control that amongst the squad but you, you can tell around... Around the island of Ireland now, the the weight of expectations is very high on this
1: team. I just wonder about this, and I'd be interested in your view on it. I think teams have obviously, and this always happens on the way up. Uh, people catch you out. People have had a long time to look at Ireland now in video. Most people have played them. You know, there's a big difference. I think it's become apparent also. Why Ireland's kicking game is so important, not just the fact that they do it well, but what that brings, the way it pins teams back, the way it affects momentum and so on. I think teams are looking specifically to neutralise that. And if they do, then that part of the effectiveness is taken away. And I just wonder whether, I don't think it's a revolution, whether that tactic itself needs a bit of tweaking, a bit of an evolution uh, around it.
5: Yeah, uh, you make a good point, uh, but I don't think they, they have reinvented the wheel. They they rely heavily on their kicking game. That mm-hmm. hasn't changed for probably three or four years. And Conor Murray has been, you know, pinpoint from the base of the rocks with his box kicks. Johnny Sexton out of hand as well has, has been very pinpoint over the last number of seasons. But noticeably in the first two games, it has been a bit wayward, especially Conor Murray. Now he is rusty. He's been coming back from long-term injury. So that has had an effect because when it is accurate, they get turnover from the box, they establish possession and they can get into that, that phase dominant play that uh, has been you know, so effective for them over the last couple of years because it just stars the opposition of ball and eventually they give away a penalty and then they kick to the corner and they utilize a strong ball game, which uh, which usually bears some fruit uh, whenever they get into the 22 and they come away with points. So it's a a really simplistic game plan that he employs. It it has been very effective, but it does, as you say, rely heavily on the the accuracy of the kicking.
3: It's really interesting looking at the psychological side of this, isn't it? When teams get themselves into the favourite tag and how they cope with it, whether that's Ireland and deservedly so over the last 12 months, Wales a little bit, obviously, as well. Warren's built them up. England are trying to get back up there. And probably the only team in the world that's really been able to cope with that is New Zealand time and time again. And you, you do just wonder whether this is going to be a big burden for Ireland going into this year, um, you know, the, the golden generation and all of those yeah. things that keep coming out again. And I think it does get into, into players' heads, and it's much easier for all of the sides to be the underdog.
5: Yeah, you make another good point there. I think I, I can't imagine any time you guys played against Ireland that Ireland would have been favourites over the past. I think it, it sits a wee bit better that with with the players historically that that we've always been underdogs against the bigger teams and we've sort of thrived on that. We haven't been hugely successful. And you know, this is going back to your days, but it was an easier burden to have. But I think it wasn't a great performance against Scotland, but it was a win against a very good team. Scotland will rue a few missed chances, as they did last year at the Aviva. But it was, it was a good win against a tough opposition. As I said, first week we were hit by a juggernaut in England. England were fantastic. Ireland were below par. They were very rusty. So uh, I don't think it's something that that is going to cause a problem because the management of the squad is so... Is so fantastic under Joe Schmidt, and it has been for a number of years. And Ireland have carried the favourite tag in, in many of their games for uh, the last number of years due to the success of this this squad over the last four, four or five years, I think. So you know, there's just this this almost sense of entitlement that, that Ireland were going to win them win the match, and I think that's a very dangerous thing to have. It's certainly you're almost poking the bear.
1: Last question, Italy next now there is a temptation or will be a temptation to make wholesale changes. I just wonder whether Joe Schmidt might feel a bit more constrained to make fewer changes and get the nucleus of the team that's been so successful you know, back on track with uh, the accuracy and the sharpness that we've seen. What what do you think the selection policy will be for this one?
5: Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a fair, fair amount of players that hadn't had a lot of game time going into the, the first round of the championship. Mm. So, I think game time will still be important for them going into the more difficult last two games, but I think it could be a sprinkling of of, of changes. I think uh, Joey Carberry maybe uh, seems seems very capable uh, at test level and it could give Sexton a, a breakout. I, I wouldn't change Murray. I think he needs the game time. But overall, I think that there's a chance to, to make changes in the Italy game. Do certainly back the depth of the squad that he's created. Given a World Cup year wouldn't be a bad time to to give them some game time and uh, uh, you know in a, in a higher pressure environment than the November series against a USA team, for example. so uh, yeah, good opportunity, but uh, keep that solar nucleus ne- intact uh, bar maybe Joey Carberry.
1: Well, I think I'd have the same comment as Rob made about Scotland. No need to panic' uh, it's still on track and thanks very much for speaking to us Paddy.
5: You're very welcome.
1: Paddy Wallace, former Island Centre. Well, we can now, I think, speak to James Hook to get a Welsh perspective about all this. Hello, James. How are we doing now, boys? How are okay, now look, two out of two. England at home, Grand Slam time for you, isn't
6: it? <laughs> we're on course, aren't we? I think, uh, <laughs> albeit it uh, wasn't a, you know, a great performance against Italy, but like you say, it's a win. And yeah, we're on course now against England. To, uh, well, if a lot of people are talking that it as a Grand Slam decider, and uh, yeah, it's going to be a massive game.
1: I think it's a bit premature, I mean, given that Wales have to play Ireland as well. People are forgetting Ireland only lost one game, and some of the common vernacular wisdom beforehand was that no side would get a Grand Slam, and therefore we'll see. I just This is an interesting uh, point to me. The 15 that Warren puts on the field against England, mm-hmm. they've had enough rest now, but they haven't had the sort of two games in the crucible of, of, of test rugby that, that England have had it could go one of two ways that how do you how do you see that factor
6: yeah it could it could and you know you could argue so the English boys would be battle hardened ready, ready for that match and but I think Warren said, you know, before, before even the Six Nations, he's going to give boys opportunities, obviously being, being a World Cup year and all that. And I think he found out a lot about, you know, some of the boys there, like Owen Watkin, for example, who has had a, a lot of opportunities in the centre, stood up really well against Italy, Ali Davis and, uh, you know, Josh Adams have been playing uh, you know really, really well. So I think he's found out you know a lot about a few boys, but I think obviously England is going to be his, his strongest team and, you know, it's going to be a huge test, obviously, you know, the how well England have started. But I think the boys are up to, up to the job and we got a lot of experience in that team. But I think, you know, obviously we need to create a lot more than we have done so far.
1: An absolute area of expertise for you, the halfback positions. Who do you think will start? Whatever combination it is, mm-hmm. do you think they've got the control that will be necessary for, you know, what will be an absolutely titanic uh, struggle?
6: Yeah, no, it will. And I, it's a really tough one. I'm not, I'm not really sure which one Gatlin will, will start, you know, particularly a at outside half. I think that, that's a big dilemma, as it always is in Wales. But, he, you know, he's given both 10s both a start in, in the first two games and, you know, neither has really taken their opportunities. But it, it depends, you know, if if you want uh, a, a really solid 10, you know, Dan Bigger will, will kick really well. He'll, he'll he'll do really well in the air uh, and he'll put pressure on, on the English back three. And him and what he does give you, you know, he plays flat to the line and Hopefully, you know, if he does play, then uh, he'll create more opportunities. But it's going to be really interesting that we start with the 10. And again, at nine as well, you know, we've got three three good nines, Thomas Williams, Ali Davis and Gareth Davis. And to be honest with you, whichever one he picks there, you know, wouldn't really bother me because they've all played really well lately.
3: On that halfback thing, isn't it? We were talking earlier about selection and getting the right combinations in place to really control things. And having, having the flexibility is, is one thing, but actually... I'm sure that that from a Welsh perspective, you want to know what what Warren's best team is, and we probably haven't quite seen that yet. He's gone for the he's gone for the sort of um, varying up the sides, but we all know that when when he comes to this game, he will know what his best team is. He'll know what what he's gonna what he's gonna do against England, having watched England play. So, who, who do you think he'll go with at at, at the halfbacks? Oh, you'd
6: like to think he
3: knows his best team and. And to be honest, I, th- I think you'd go with Anscombe at ten. Just
6: you know, he brought him on pretty early against Italy, um, probably to pick his confidence up after the French game, because he caught a lot of flak after that French game, and you know, it probably wasn't all his doing. You know, the French were rampant in the field, start and obviously, everyone, everyone knows you know, how well we came back, and a lot of was, was to do with Dan Bigger and you know his control and kicking. But if you look back to the autumn, you know, when we beat South Africa and Australia, Anscombe was a man at ten and, and got us going. So I think you know Gatland and the coaching staff still have faith in him. Um, and I quite like, you know, Dan Bigger being on the bench and, you know, with sort of 20, 30 minutes to go, he can come on and kick the goals and, and steady the game up if it needs to be.
1: Well, Sean Edwards will obviously have his own plans for England in uh, defensive circles. And it will be a difficult uh, test if England carry the balls intelligently as they did in the first two games. But let me ask you about the attack. Is there anything specifically that you think uh, Gatlin and his coaches will have seen with England where they think actually this is the place where we might prosper?
6: <sighs> to be honest with you, I don't see an awful lot of weakness with, with the single squad and you know I, I quite like the, you know, the way he's got two Langians and Slade that combination and variety there so I, I think going back to what I said I think Wales have got to play to their strengths and you know it's, it's another reason why he may pick bigger is for his kicking game and maybe play on the back three and as well as Johnny May and Daly and and Nolan Ashton have played, you know, if, if, if they can get, you know, good kicks on them, good kicks to compete and put a bit of pressure on them in, in the Millennium Stadium, then, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how they go. But, you know, obviously with, with loose kicks, you know, they're devastating runners. But, um, yeah, it, it will be interesting, but there's not a lot of weaknesses there, I've got to be honest, Brian.
1: Uh, just one final question. You mentioned the Millennium. You are at home. The Welsh crowd, you know, will, as I say, be up for this? Can they make the difference?
6: I think they can. I think emotionally you know, they're going to be there. You know, probably more so than they have done in the last uh, few games. But you know, they, they've got to stop. You know, obviously the likes of the Vanu brothers, Tulangi, and uh, try and stop Johnny May scoring tries because uh, he's in you know a rich in the form of the moment. But you know, it's a Wales England game. So whether uh, it's a Grand Slam decider or or just a random game, you know, they're going to be up for it, and, and the crowd are going to be bouncing. So yeah, I, I'm really positive, and, and Wales, you know, on a great winning streak at the moment, so 11 games in a row. And, uh, you know, th- they used to win it at the moment. So it's uh, it's going to be really exciting.
1: Well, James, we shall see, but we've got to leave it there. And, but thank you very much for speaking to us. No worries. Cheers, boys. James Hook, former Wales fly half. It will be a huge uh, I battle. it
3: <laughs> be nice. We should put uh, Jones and Gatland in the ring first. Yeah, so. I, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Let them yeah. sort it out. The ball hookers.
1: Off you go. <laughs> off you go, boys. <laughs> well, the verbal battle has only just started. And over the next... Ten days <laughs> it is it's bound to intensify because Warren Gatlin said, I'm not gonna get involved in this, but he can't help himself. I mean, we know Jones will, definitely. But um it, it, we we could have some quite explosive things. In the end, do you think it really makes any difference to the teams of squad?
3: No, I don't think it makes a blind bit of difference. <laughs> I think I think it's fantastic for the media, it's fantastic for the public to see what Eddie's gonna say next or what Warren's gonna say next. And the They've done it all their careers. They can't help themselves. It's part of their makeup.
1: It's part Com- of being a hooker Complete well,
3: well, exactly. I mean, <laughs> say no more.
1: <laughs> that, that, <we'll- laughs> Let's move on to France and Italy. I, uh, Italy first. I spoke to Conor O'Shea, you know, the tournament starting. He agreed that Italy's problem is they've got better, but everyone else has got better as well. I haven't quite seen... As much from them as I thought we would do, they've made errors that they shouldn't really have made, even for you know a side under pressure the The problem for them is if they do come under pressure, the temptation and the likelihood is that they give penalties away that puts more pressure on them it's a it's a it's a circle which is very difficult to break, and I think they're suffering from that quite badly,
3: yeah, and I think it's there's a real issue potentially brewing here when you 've got a six nations game where and away side feels that they can make ten changes Ooh. to their first choice, what what is perceived to be their first choice team, and still win reasonably comfortably in a in a pretty low key game, um, and that's effectively what happened. So that that starts to impact. I mean, it's not necessarily going to impact the England Wales game because there's two weeks between this game. But if that had been a week between England Wales, and Wales were able to do that, and and England had to sort of I don't know, go to Dublin or something and, and only have six days turnaround, then it's it starting to really impact on, on the quality and the integrity of the tournament. And I think that, that's that got to be a concern in the long run. And then yeah. you, we, you start the debate around promotion and relegation, which World Rugby are sort of thinking and talking about. Unfortunately
1: I mean, sure for Italy, there's no, or seemingly no appetite from the Cosi Club, which is what I call the Six Nations Committee, to change anything at the moment. No,
3: they won't change. I mean, they won't change it, but but it, you know, and that's, it, where where does that leave the Georgias of this world? It, Georgia could probably
1: compete in the six nations. Well, look, I mean, I'm on record as, as saying, however you do it, however many years you have between promotion and relegation, there's got to be an automatic right and a qualification as of right before you can give any hope to the tier two nations of becoming self-sufficient. But th- that's a debate which will go on. For quite a while. I mean, from Italy's point of view, the good thing is their final game is at home and they've got France. Now, who knows where France will be at that point? They might have come through this and might have played, you know, warm weather. They might start getting selections right. They may be irresistible as they can be. Or they could be a complete and utter mess.
3: Yeah, and that's the sort of, they're almost becoming, if France continue down this road and they've sort of been down this road for a couple of years now, with Italy, they're, they're almost getting left at the bottom of the Six Nations because England, Ireland, Wales, and to be fair, Scotland—you know—over the last twelve months have really taken their game forward, and we've seen that in Europe as well with Edinburgh and Glasgow, and it's it's starting to become a little bit of a, a problem for the Six Nations. No, I tell
1: you, you what—you look at the age group teams where France are doing well, just won the twenties World Cup. You look at the players who came on from the bench, the younger ones, they've obviously got a lot of talent, but the, when you play as individuals, you know, in today's rugby, with the systems they've got and the preparation, that is not going to work. But you can see there is raw talent there, albeit that for this World Cup, you've probably, if you went back to youth like Gareth Southgate did, then you're just not experienced enough. So that's not there. But for me, you cannot continue to play players like Bastaro, who, if he ever was an international centre, certainly isn't now. Players like Varmahina, they're just not fit enough. I, I don't see the point in them continuing, because scrapping in the World Cup, getting nearly there, is not going to solve the longer-term problem.
3: No, but then but then that's up to the hierarchy, isn't it, around the, the coach? So, the, the you, you know, who... Who elected the coach in the first place? And actually, has he taken them down the road with the talent that's coming through?
1: But also, you've still got this. Seemingly good coaches who've proved themselves elsewhere, when they come to the French job, seem to go crazy yeah. and seem to do things that you, you look at and think, you, you would never have done that in a club, guys, or whatever. Why are you doing it now? I, I, I can't explain it. Well because you can't explain either because you're not a psychiatrist. we've been talking about it for
3: twenty five years. And it's um before professionalism when it was just, you know, all French players playing in all the French teams and some of the greats of the world game, you know, in the seventies, eighties and into the nineties, since professionalism, with all the money that's come into the club game, they now they now can't quite work out what the French national team should be. And they haven't had a strong enough head coach or a head of the the federation, to take them down a certain road. And it just seems to be one disaster after another. And each World Cup doesn't mean to say they actually won't pull something out of the fire in the World Cup. The coach, the players will have sacked the coach halfway through the tournament anyway because that's normally what happens in the World <laughs> Cup. So the players have taken over. It's anarchy and it's Ooh. how French rugby has been for it at the national level. Their club game, loads of money and big clubs and, and, and all the rest of it. But the national level, it is... It is anarchy. must uh, be like
1: playing football in Holland, that's all I can say. Anyway, why don't we move on to the refereeing section of this. Nigel Owens, he's on the lambs spoke to Nigel for a while, but uh, he of course, was the England-France referee. Contractually, Nigel is not allowed to make comment on his own performance or that of his contemporaries. We understand that and we respect that. Uh, but anyway, it's good to speak to you, Nigel. Hello. I told you, this, but anyway, we're going to ask you something. <laughs> How are you? How are you? How are you? <laughs> yeah, not are you? bad. One of the things that's come up and has come up on my social media feed is this How long is long enough for advantage? Now, just can you explain the two bits the one from a knock on and the one from a penalty?
0: Yeah, I, I think, to try and explain the advantage, you, you probably need a couple of hours' programme, maybe.
1: Because <laughs> well, try it, not to take a couple of hours, yeah, of hours, if you can help it. It, it, it,
0: it comes down to, to referee's interpretation, first of all. And I think, before I do explain the different types of advantages briefly for you here, what I think is important is, as long as the referee is consistent himself within that game, so if, if, if I referee and I play maybe a shorter advantage than another referee does, and that shouldn't really be an issue for the consistency of the game as long as my interpretations is of it's is consistent for the game that I referee. Because every referee is taken advantage will be slightly different. But the two types of advantage are the knock-on, which tends to be over pretty quickly, uh, either by a sort of, if there's been a knock-on and then a player picks up and he gains five, six, seven, he does an off-road to somebody else, the referee usually calls it over. Or if there's been a two or three rucks have gone forward a bit, then it means they've had good control for two or three racks and they tend to call advantage over. What you shouldn't do is play advantage or call advantage over if a team is under pressure, so they're going backwards and they're they struggling to get an advantage, they're not getting advantage. And then the other one which is a bit more difficult is the penalty advantage, which tends to be to be longer. Now the rule of thumb is for referees that a team doesn't get two bites of the sherry. So it's not a free pass. If you don't score, no matter how long you have the ball, I'll come back and give you the penalty. That That's not what advantage is about. Once a side has had a clear opportunity to gain advantage, then the advantage should be over. And that clear opportunity is the key. It could be um, you know, uh, 20 metres gaining ground from a penalty advantage, and then you have a 2-1, and all he's got to do is beat the full-back and they score a try. But he throws a poor pass and the winger knocks on, then the referee could say, well, look, you had a clear opportunity to take advantage there. You weren't under any undue pressure. You messed that up yourselves. So advantage is over. So there isn't really a set time. There isn't really a set amount of distance. It's down to the referee to interpret. But what I think you have to be careful is that you don't play advantage on too long. And there's been, a, you know, a clearly advantage has been gained. Then advantage should be over then.
1: Penalty tries. Am I right in thinking when it, the law says a uh, try would probably be scored, the probability, you know, in 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 civil law of that is fifty one forty nine. Is it that, or is it you know, or does it have to be a, a greater probability?
0: Well, that's a good one, Brian. I, I, if I'm going to be uh, trying to defend the penalty try evidence, I'm going to use our civil law and fifty one forty nine. It sounds that like you can say it pretty pretty quickly. If if the referee feels that the try would have probably been scored, it doesn't have to be definitely scored, and it shouldn't be possibly scored. It's probable. The referee thinks, well, if it wasn't for an act of foul play, then a try would have probably been scored. Then you give the penalty try. And then one thing I see still a few people are not quite clear on once a referee identifies the individual that has caused the offense to give the penalty try, he has to give a yellow card. So it's not, a, you have the penalty try, so then you forget the yellow card. You have to give the yellow card once an individual is identified. Now, some people think that's a bit harsh, but then the only thing I will say, at least is consistent. So everybody knows if you're going to give a penalty try and you identify the individual, then it's going to be a yellow card and that's consistent throughout the game. Now, let's say a scrum collapses and they were going forward and the referee gives a penalty try and all three of the front rows were at fault, then he wouldn't need to give a yellow card because he can't identify an individual within that. But if you can identify the individual involved, then, then
1: he has to give a so yellow card. almost certainly the prop, that's all I'll say. Never the hooker. <laughs> so just to, just, to, just to sum this up, Nigel, it's got to be more than possible, which means it definitely has to be over 50%, but it doesn't have to be almost certainly scored. It's somewhere. No, it's not,
0: it's, no it's not an almost certain, it's not a, uh, you know, a, a possibility is not good enough, and an almost certain or a definite is, is not. It's a probability. Do you think he would have probably scored? I think he probably would have, Then it's a penalty trial. If you think, mm, I don't think you would have then it's not a penalty to try. That's well, when it comes down to.
1: Nigel, I'll, I'll leave you with that useful lawyer's tip uh, and then you can justify on that basis. But uh, it's great <laughs> to speak to you. Thank you very much. Cheers, all the best, boys. Well, when you're talking about refereeing, I mean, it's like this, isn't it? Hardly ever do officials make the difference in games. You can always, nearly always, go back and say, well, you know what? Say, for example, the Scotland game. Hand-thrown that pass not overrun I and mean, win. that's a 12 point swing
3: yeah i mean it's really hard though isn't it when you, the emotions post the game it's easy yeah. for us to sit here cold light of day we we've we've all come off and blame the referee or during the game got frustrated by certain decisions but you're absolutely right and the cold, when it's all over and you wrap it all up the referee doesn't decide the outcome of a game the the flow ebb and flow of a game over the course of 80 minutes means that in rugby, particularly, the side that deserves to win nearly always does. Either because they've played well enough themselves to win, or perhaps in the case of Scotland at the weekend, they've made the mistakes that have allowed Ireland to score the tries. Well, that's not the referee's fault. The, the throwing the ball back to your fullback at 90 miles an hour when when you're in your own 22. You know, those are the decisions that the players make under pressure. And in the end, that's the big thing about the international game, isn't it? And the big thing about the top level is is who can withstand the pressure of the moment, the kick chase, no, the, the you, quality. Yeah.
1: You, you might have a case if it's in the very last second and there's no chance of... Of coming back from whatever the effects are. But even then, you generally look back on the previous 79, and you can usually identify things that actually you shouldn't have done or you should have done that generally make the difference. If, it, if you can't do, then I absolutely agree you might have a case. Yeah, but, but that's very rare,
3: out. very rare. Maybe in the World Cup when Scotland played Australia, you might no, but, blame, look, you know.
1: but even in that case, they lost that game because they lost a line out earlier on that they scored yeah. from, and for some reason, they decided to shorten the line out, didn't win that one that led yeah, to the yeah. possession that led yeah, yeah, to the incident. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. No, you it's,
3: we, it's easy now. Now we're not playing. It's easy to say that it's never, <laughs> it's never it the referee's yeah, fault.
1: Yeah, And I never blame the referee ever. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, why don't we speak about uh, the women's Six Nations, which is going on, the Red Roses, as well. Well, a bit like their male counterparts, they thumped France. Forty-one twenty-six to discuss that. The other results were Italy three, Wales three, Scotland five, Ireland twenty-two. We have a World Cup winner with us, Maggie Alphonse is on the line. Hello, Maggie. Hello, Brian. Hello, Rob.
3: Hi, Maggie.
1: Look, France—they um, were the big test. Uh, you know, Ireland for some reason have seemingly dropped off uh, in, in the last eighteen months, but they were missing um, Jesse uh, Tumelier, um who was World Player of the Year. Was that influential or not in the wider scheme of things?
2: No, I think England were were always favourites to potentially win that game. They've got a lot of sevens players returning. So you Emily Scarrett, your Jess Breach. So their squad was a lot stronger than what it was last year. And also they got the professional contracts, which was brought into play as of the 3rd of January. So England's England squad was always uh, going to be I guess, very dominant uh, on the weekend, where the French side, I mean, yeah, they've focused on sevens this season uh, because of the Olympic qualification. So, yet they didn't have Jesse Trimulé, they didn't have Durand, they didn't have Lepes. So, there's some key players who actually, if they were in that French side, it might be a different game. But the way England played, I mean, the the score seven tries and the way they scored those seven tries was very impressive. And it's, it's... yeah, the England squad are looking very exciting because they've got this depth of players coming through, which makes them going to be uh, very strong come 2021 for the Women's Rugby World Cup.
3: What about Katie? Mac- well, Daily McLean now, Katie McLean as we used to know her. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 500 points. There's only two yeah. other English players gone past that. Certain Mr. Wilkinson and the Miss and-, and Owen Farrell. That's pretty, pretty exceptional, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I, you know, just like you, though, I have to say, Rob, she's, she's very skillful um, in the, what she does. As Is a she really off. boring? <laughs> <laughs> Not that boring, no, no. <laughs> no she, she's, she's a skillful athlete and, and for someone to still keep going, um, considering she's been to, I think this will, you know, if she makes it to the next World Cup, it'll be her fourth World Cup, I think. Or Can three, she do that? Know. Will she want to? Yeah, do you know, I think she can only because in terms of depth of uh, fly half coming behind her, there's not actually a large amount. You know, um, Zoe Harrison, who, who was on the bench um, on the on the weekend, is probably the next one coming through. But other than that, I don't think there's a lot of depth coming through in that position. So I think if Katie potentially stays fit uh, and has that same motivation, she could definitely make it to she'll make it to the next World Cup for sure. Um, Whether she'd want to continue after that, I don't know, but. She's still got the, the form and she's enjoying the rugby from what, it, from what I can see. And she's, um yeah, racking up the points.
3: That's because it's such a difficult position to play fly half. That there's, it's not, there's not that yeah. many people coming up behind, but never mind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Look, but Maggie, playing at Doncaster, the capacity yeah. was 5,000 and really nearly reached that. It was over the uh, previous one. What's your view? I don't mean just taking it to the regions, but it, it, it's this. It's great for the women to play in the national stadia not great when the crowd's rattling around in terms of atmosphere is there a balance to be struck where, where do you stand on this
2: so I mean I have to say I would have loved that game to have been held as a double header uh, with the England men played either you know whatever likely it would have been after the men's game you can just imagine that atmosphere and potentially the amount of people who would have stayed to watch mm. the women play after for me I think that would have been absolutely awesome especially as that game was um was effectively the the decider of the tournament. But look, it's great that they're moving it around. I think it's important to move it around because we're trying to grow our game still. You know, women's rugby is still a sport that it, it needs to get a greater audience. And the only way you can actually do that is by moving it around to different stadiums. But you do need to make sure that when it's on TV, you've got the atmosphere, you've got that support and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like it, that fact that it's moved around, but I also like the fact when they get the opportunity to play at Twickenham uh, as a double header with the men, it, it really does bring uh, a lot more, I guess, hype to the game.
1: Well, look, don't want to be too precipitous about this, but, the, the, I mean, this is an absolute fact. The games against Wales, Italy and Scotland are games against teams that are definitely weaker than England. Mm. Um, you want to guard against overconfidence, but I would have thought that, England should look internally and say these are the standards we need to set irrespective of who we're playing and we're going to judge ourselves against those.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, theoretically, the tournament's pretty much won. If we're honest about it, you know, England will will do really well against, you know, the Wales, Italy and Scotland just because they've, they've beaten them several times before. But the big focus, have you, as you've already highlighted there, is about actually how do you get this team to be better? How do we ensure that they keep working on their skills? And knowing Simon Milton, he's probably going to rotate the team a, a few times, I imagine, to build that depth and see what other young players are coming through. But, um, yeah, the, the focus for them is not to get complacent now, but to make sure they keep the standard up because what they don't want to do is give away soft tries. And like and likelihood, actually, a team like Italy, they are still a threat and they're currently sitting second in the Six Nations table and the women's table. So they could potentially put on the possible points against against England. They've done it before. So, for England, they just want to make sure that they keep their defence good. They're still you know, uh, scoring lots of tries and they're just keeping the standard up because now they are professional athletes. People have expectations of them. So it's important that every time they play, regardless of who they play against, it's, it's always good rugby.
1: Maggie, great to speak to you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Maggie Alfonsi, a former England flanker and World Cup winner. Rob, week off, three questions. How do you keep morale up if you're in the French and Italian camp?
3: well easy probably for italy with with connor at least they've at least they've got a stable management team the yeah similar to what saying the french they've got you know they're, they're just in, in a complete and utter mess genuine mess and it's actually i mean it's quite funny at times looking at it but it, it's not good for the it's game it's not funny for six nations it's and it needs you know it's it's a real it, it's it was disastrous it really was disastrous so they've really got to go back to the to the drawing board somehow selection uh, would help wouldn't it well, it goes back to everything we have always, always talk about. Pick the right players in the right position and have a decent game plan, and then you give the players a chance to execute the skills.
1: Well, the other thing is, then you can tell what players are doing what jobs, whether they're good or bad. If you play them all out of position with no discernible game plan, how the hell do you know who's at fault, what's at fault, or anything? You wouldn't do any scientific experiment like that.
3: The only person at fault is the head coach. Yeah,
1: well, there you go. Um, if you're Ireland and Scotland, more accuracy needed, a bit more intensity, maybe in Ireland's case, do you just keep um, working on the same thing as anything else to come, I suppose? Injuries, a potential, recovery from injuries, a apart, what do you do?
3: Yeah, no, I think yeah, I think those two just sort of try and, and keep building through the tournament so that what one of those two is probably going to go on and, and, and grow it as the tournament goes and the other one might go the other way. So... They'll both want to get to the point now where they they, they just build so they can finish the tournament um, having built through it. They've both, you know, had a bit of a, a knockback early doors, which often happens in the Six Nations anyway, you know, early first or second game. So there'll be no panic button press. Two two good head coaches, they know what they're doing, few injuries that they've had to deal with. Um, so they'll manage that through and, and just try and keep progressing.
1: And let's remind ourselves that Ireland have only lost one game, Wales have still got to play Ireland, so who knows?
3: Absolutely. I mean, yeah. the
1: bonus point thing could come into play, yeah. but that, that is all there. England and Wales, um, stop people going on social media, don't read the papers, don't listen to anything. No, That's not what you not can't gonna, do. That's it, can not going to
3: happen, and it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Middle middle game, they're both two from two. They've got two spiky head coaches who, who have got very long memories, and they remember what people said mm. A year ago, or the year before that, and going into Cardiff is just an am- amazing experience. And another from an England perspective, they went down there two years ago, probably shouldn't have won when they scored. Elliot Daly scored in virtually the, the last minute in the in the corner. Wales really should have closed the game out. So they just hit. keep the ball off a well. That the does top. help, doesn't it? You know. Yeah. So England will will be looking. To go down to Cardiff and carry on where where they are at the moment, Wales will be wanting to get back to Cardiff, uh, firing the whole thing up. They've been a bit hit and miss in the first two games. Is that going to make any difference in this this game? I I doubt it, to be honest. But um, it'll it'll be amazing as well, always. I say we've got
1: a, a week off, and no doubt between now and the fixture, certainly for the next podcast, there'll all sorts of things said, which we can dissect. But uh, we leave it there. That's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with the Telegraph. Thank you, Rob Andrew, my co-host, and as always, producer Abby Patterson. Please do subscribe to the podcast, leave a review if you haven't already. But for now, it's goodbye.